welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking, out-of-the-box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and lock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. states reveal a deeper reality they actually just reveal what sort of what the subcon the level is what the subconscious is processing all the time but it is a much more information rich environment and because you get access to this information richness this heightened information right your womb belt your ability to perceive the world expands in these states you get greater access to greater mysteries Anytime you use technology to accelerate biology, you're becoming a cyborg. So anybody who wears eyeglasses, anybody who uses a portable memory device, otherwise known as the World Wide Web, is a cyborg, right? With augmented reality that's becoming closer and closer and closer. And you know, and then as the technology starts going into our bodies, it's closer and closer and further still. Nine years from now, the average thousand-dollar laptop is going to have the same computing power as a human brain. Twenty-five years after that, the average thousand-dollar laptop is going to have the same computing power as the entire human race. Hey, what is up, everyone? In this episode of the Sen Podcast, we're joined by Stephen Kotler. Stephen is the author of the book The Rise of the Superman and also the book Tomorrowland and he is the co-founder of the Flow Genome Project. Stephen is one of the world's most foremost experts on flow states and human performance. So if you're not familiar with the concept of obtaining a flow state, a flow state is associated with peak human performance and is when we seemingly achieve the impossible. So if you are familiar with Stephen Kotler, you may have heard him on a few other podcasts, but in this conversation we really did take on a very different approach and angle to what you may have heard before, and we also certainly gathered that from Stephen too. And as you will see in this podcast, by some of the questions we asked Stephen, we you really get the impression that we covered some really interesting areas that he has not touched on before. So if in this podcast... We talked about using flow state to speed up learning and increase creativity and how them two worlds will in turn affect human consciousness on this planet. We talked about the time distortion effect that seems to take place when we are in flow state. We also asked Stephen, could the chemical response of flow state actually be the cause of us as human beings asking bigger questions about the universe? And that was a really interesting angle as well. We talked about spirituality in states of flow re-engineering the human body and the connection with flow and what it does and what that will mean for a, for a society in the future. We talked about developing new minds via flow states and how that connection and the interaction of them two worlds could affect technology in the future. We talked about the future of technology that actually may revolutionise the human body and mind and so much more. This was a very interesting and in-depth conversation and just before we jump with this podcast, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all the amazing emails and messages you guys have been sending us over the last few weeks. We've received a high number of emails and thanks so much for reaching out and connecting. Now I just wanted to give a little shout out to one of our listeners called Ivan and I hope I've pronounced his name right. 
but Ivan reached out to us saying he really enjoys the podcast and he's learned so much on his own journey. And then Ivan actually told us he was only 16 years old. And me and Chris thought that was absolutely amazing. I can't even remember what I was doing when I was 16 years age, but it certainly wasn't expanding my mind. He is actually 16 years old and he's really exploring these type of questions in his mind. And that to us is certainly more than any skill that people would class as relevant these days. And if every 16 year old person was seeking like that, wow. So we just thought that was absolutely amazing and such a positive thing. So thank you again for all your emails. And we'd absolutely love if you guys could just leave a review of the podcast and also tell your friends about it as well. And every week after each episode, we also have all the links and all the resources mentioned in the show notes over at our website. So anyway, without further ado, Stephen Kotler. Well, Stephen, I'd just like to say welcome onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So Stephen, just to get this thing started, could you define flow state and what is flow state? Sure. Uh, Flow is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness. It's a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to those moments of rapt attention and total absorption when we get so focused on the task at hand that pretty much everything else disappears. So your sense of self will vanish, action and awareness will start to merge, time will dilate, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely, so sometimes it'll slow down, you'll get a freeze frame effect familiar to anybody who's in a car crash. Uh, more frequently, it speeds up and five hours pass by in like five minutes. And throughout, all aspects of performance go through the roof. Yeah, it was, it, Stephen, it's interesting how you said car crashes as well, because I've actually experienced that similar effect as well. And I think obviously a lot of people who listen to this as well probably have experienced that similar effect. But um, Stephen, I'm really, I am really fascinated by flow states and creating these flow states as well. And I've always wanted to try and like fully understand how to get inside of these states as well. And I know obviously you guys at the, like the Flow Genome Project are actually like starting to decode actually what's happening in flow. But what is actually like causing um, flow in the brain? It's a great question. Um, when you talk about the brain, the easiest way to talk about the brain is to talk about neuroanatomy, so where in the brain something is taking place, neurochemistry and neuroelectricity, which are the two ways the brain communicates, right? It's how it sends signals. Now, of course, the brain is actually a system of networks, so this is kind of a grossly reduced way of looking at brain function, but it's useful when talking about flow. What happens in flow is you get, you get changes sort of everywhere across the brain. It's a, it's a big response. The most important thing we see is a lot of decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex. Now, that's, the prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that governs most of your higher cognitive functions, long-term planning, complex decision-making, your sense of morality, your sense of will. As we move into flow, the brain sort of performs an efficiency exchange. Flow requires a massive amount of, ten of attention and attention focused in the right here, right now. So the brain does a trade. It trades energy that would normally run different parts of the prefrontal cortex for extra energy for attention. And as a result, we see large swatches of the prefrontal cortex shutting down. So this explains, for example, the time dilation you were just talking about in the car crash. Why does time pass so strangely in flow? Because it turns out time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Oh. So when parts of it wink out, 
we can't separate past from present from future and we're plunged into this point in time that researchers talk about as the deep now or the elongated present. Same thing happens to your sense of self, right? Self is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Parts of it wink out. We can't perform this calculation. This is, by the way, when the self disappears, huge boost in performance for a number of obvious reasons. With When the self goes away, one of the things that shuts down, probably the most important thing, is your inner critic, that nagging always-on kind of defeatist voice in your head that never leaves you alone, we call the inner Woody Allen. In these states, Woody shuts up. As a result, we get out of our own way. Risk-taking goes up. Mm. Decision-making and creativity go up because we're no longer judging our ideas so harshly because we're that portion of the brain is dialed down. At the same time, as you've got kind of this portion of the brain deactivating, you get a huge boost in neurochemistry. Five of the most potent performing and enhancing neurochemicals that the brain can produce all show up. They have hugely different effects, but you know they primarily impact motivation, learning, and creativity, which all sort of go through the roof. Uh, performance as a whole goes through the roof as a result of these neurochemicals. Um, and you get changes in neuroelectricity that make flow much more similar to kind of the hypnagogic state as you're starting to fall asleep when you're kind of go, going into dreaming. Um, that's, your brain waves are actually down around that alpha-theta border when that's going on. So that's what's going on in the brain. Yeah, it's interesting how you, you touched back again on the, obviously that distortion effect with the time as well because it does seem to be when you're on a flow state, like you said, our sense of self and our sort of a self of our, our own consciousness as well, they seem to vanish. And obviously, like you said before, it seems to be that like time slows down. I think that's that's a really like interesting point, like to sort of like hone in on that. Well, it's not just the time slows down because that does happen, but it's more infrequent. The, the, okay, let me back up a step because this is important to understand. Mm. In the 1970s, a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who was a psychologist, he was running the University of Chicago psychology department. He he one of the, one of sort of the middle pack of flow researchers. Flow science goes back to the 1870s, but he was sort of the godfather of modern flow psychology, and he discovered a number of things that are really critical here. The first is that flow is ubiquitous; it shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met, so everybody can get into flow. The next thing he discovered that is that there are seven defining characteristics of a flow state and these were we've talked about some of them uninterrupted focus concentration time dilation right the strange passage of time the vanishing of self a sense of total control over the situation list sort of goes on now you can have a state of micro flow where a couple of these conditions show up right concentration action awareness start to merge or macro flow where all seven of them show up when all seven show up at once it tends to be a quasi-mystical experience. Really strange things happen. It's a profoundly altered state. Microflow happens all the time, and we experience microflow time time dilation all the time, but it goes in the opposite direction. Instead of time slowing down, it speeds up. So this is what happens when you fall into a great conversation with a friend of yours, Mm -hmm. and you're you know, supposed to talk for five minutes, but you get totally sucked in, totally lost. You lose your sense of self. You lose track of time, and two hours go by before you look up. That's also a state of flow. It's a state of microflow, but it's a different kind of time dilation. So instead of time slowing down, it speeds up. Wow, well, that's fascinating. Um, and Stephen, like something else, I was just thinking there is like there's so many different people in all walks of life who experience these different types of flow. Like everyone from like world-class athletes to meditators and even people like 
just playing video games, they all experience these different types of flow. Um, something I, I even like, I used to play video games a lot when I was younger, and I would get into these states in my mind where I could just focus, literally transfix on a video game, and that would be all that matters. I'd, I'd know my objectives, I'd know the goal, I'd be completely engrossed in the stimulation, like, and I would be transfixed on this, and I'd be getting this like video game state flow. And what's interesting to me is like, um, was when I had, uh, I suffered from depression afterwards, but um, during like when I was playing video games a lot, even though I was getting out of shape, I was feeling, I was feeling unwell. When I was playing video games, I never cared because I was so transfixed on just playing video games. And the depression actually hit when I started working out, when I realized like all the mistakes I was making and, and even going through the transition, that's how it all like just change for us and and now I feel like I'm more of in a flow state now when I'm concentrating on my own life and a life of purpose and passion and that's how I think that how these various different flow states can affect various different people and I think it's amazing so you touched on a ton of really interesting shit um, I don't know if I can say that on this podcast <laughs> oh, but I just did you can say um, whatever you want <laughs> oh good alright so you touched on a ton of interesting stuff and uh, let's just pull apart a couple of really interesting variables. The first is that video games are, so flow states have triggers. There are about 20 of them. And if you want more flow in your life, what you do is you maximize the number of triggers you're encountering on a you know daily basis, basically. Really easy sort of metric for that. Video games are packed with flow triggers, very high flow environments. There are articles, in fact, the Oracle, uh, the, uh, there are people in the video game industry who believe that the amount of flow states a video game produces is a great metric for judging how successful that game will be once released on the on the market. So flow is becoming more and more talked about in the industry and a much bigger mark, metric for success. You touched upon something, you know, which is interesting, which is you are calling video games kind of an empty pastime. And that's, you know, that's a question about, you know, judging the value of video games. I do find it, you know, the, the number I find frightening is that by the time most Americans reach uh, 18 years of age, they've put in 10,000 hours looking at online pornography and playing first-person shooter games. So that's alarming to me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I, I, you know, there, there's also, I, and I wrote about this in a book uh, called Abundance, there's tremendous potential for video games in learning and education and you know there's a lot of ways they can you know they can do a lot of good and, and even the, the violent shooter games do train up a lot of really interesting skills pattern recognition multitasking you know goal directed behavior there's some grit research there's some interesting stuff you can get from video games mm-hmm. so I don't know you know I, the, the, the jury is still out on whether or not that is an empty pastime or not but to your next final point, which I think is the most important one. So flow states have triggers, as I said when I started this. And the easiest thing to think about with these triggers is flow can only show up when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now. So the first thing these triggers do is they drive attention to the present moment. The most, one of the most critical of those is passion and purpose. For, not for any metaphysically weird reason, but quite simply, we pay a hell of a lot more attention to those things that we believe in, right? So maybe the idea is, you know, video games are a very high flow activity for you and certainly 
the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So one solution might be, you know, less obsession, more integration. Um, there's a lot of sort of addiction management strategies that come into play with flow because as you pointed out, it's very, very addictive. Those neurochemicals I spoke of, they're all among their performance enhancing capabilities, they're pleasure drugs. Mm. Why does motivation spike so much in flow? Flow is one of the most addictive states on earth. Right. Once inactivity starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it. This is a big deal for businesses, right? When, mm -hmm. when businesses, when we work with companies and we start kind of increasing the amount of flow on the job, motivation and productivity go through the roof. Wow, it's really interesting. That Stephen, I was wondering when you, you talked, touched, you obviously touched on a few triggers there, but is there any other triggers that you would like to like talk about or bring up? Well. Here's the let me let me let's back up and let me ask you a question first so I can be most useful to you guys. What do your listeners do with the majority of their time? Like there are a slew of different triggers to pick from. Um, we're not going to have time to cover them all. So give me tell me what environments we're trying to maximize flow in and for who. Well, a lot of our audience actually like um, to expand the mind and really look into like self development and uh, into mind altering realities really. So we like to expand it. They like to expand their minds. That's what I think our audience really loves it now. Yeah. Okay. So why don't I speak to some of uh, some of our research? One of the things that we discovered is that in action adventure sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, and the like, those athletes are able. They need to produce flow to perform. The level of danger has gone up so much that at the top levels of those sports, and the same thing, by the way, holds true with kind of the U.S. Special Forces, Navy SEALs, those kinds of situations. A lot of situations they're putting them in, sums into, without the high performance boost that you get from flow, they're going to the hospital afterwards, they're going home in a body bag. So we spent a long time with the action sport athletes trying to figure out what's really triggering flow for them. And more importantly, can we bridge the gap between the extreme and the mainstream? Can we figure out what they're doing and make it apply in the real world for everybody else, people who don't want to go surf 50-foot waves, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things we discovered is that flow states have what we call environmental triggers. These are things in the environment that prompt more flow. And there are three big ones, which we call uh, high consequences, rich environments, and deep embodiment. And let me take them one at a time. The most obvious flow trigger, if flow follows focus, then risk is an obvious flow trigger, right? Consequences catch our attention. And for the action adventure sport athletes, for soldiers, this is a no-brainer, right? They're putting themselves in situations where if they screw up, they're going to die. That drives a tremendous amount of focus. Now, turns out you don't need physical risk. You can use emotional risk, spiritual risk, intellectual risk. So social risk. The brain actually can't tell the difference between social fears and physical fears. So I standing up to give a speech, right? It's the it's the number one fear in the world. And it, that's weird. You would think it's sort of like getting eaten by a grizzly bear or something like that. Hmm. It's not. Um, it's public speaking and it's because the part of your brain can't tell the difference. So if you're really looking, you know, easy ways to start producing flow up the amount of risk in your life and risk is really risk is one of those things that you have it's relative for everybody but you have to start playing with it you have to start taking more small risks 
Now, when we talk about, when we work with organizations, right, and try to do this in business, one of the things this means is rapid experimentation and room for failure. Because if you're not giving people the ability to fail on the job, you're not giving them the ability to take the risk they need to produce flow. Wow. So very, that's one of the reasons why the Silicon Valley's fail forward, fail faster model works so well. Not only is it rapid experimentation and a lot very responsive with customer feedback and things like that, it tends to produce a tremendous amount of flow because you get to take bigger risks. Mm-hmm. So that's one, that's one category. Deep embodiment, fancy way of saying you're paying attention to multiple sensory streams at once. So the action sport of athletes, that's a no-brainer, right? They're using their their athletes. They're using all of their body, their eyes, ears, proprioception, balance, all that stuff being integrated at once drives a lot of attention to the nap, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of in- input streams grabs hold of kind of everything we can pay attention to, and that's what you focus on. You don't have to do that. Montessori education, which is often be called uh, been called embodied education, does the same thing by emphasizing learning through doing. And interestingly, when scientists go out into the real world and they say, where's a really high flow environment? Where do we get a lot of flow? One of the places it shows up is Montessori education. And one of the reasons is because of this embodied education principle, where it's self-directed learning and they're doing actual projects. Don't read about the windmill, go out and build one kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The next trigger is deep, uh, is rich environment, which is a fancy way of saying lots of novelty, lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability. When the brain encounters any of those things, you get a huge spike in attention, a huge neurochemical spike in dopamine, which drives focus, and all of this drives flow. So for the athletes, again, they perform in novel, complex, and unpredictable environments, the living world, very, very heavy in this trigger, very heavy in flow production. You want to encounter more of it in your life, add more travel into your, you know, into your experiences, change where you're working, break up your routine, more accidental encounters, take in more information, right? You don't, novelty isn't just experience. If you want to increase novelty, start reading outside your discipline Mm -hmm. every day, right? Those kinds of things. You can do this uh, architecturally. Steve Jobs famously, when he built Pixar, he wanted to increase the amount of flow because it heightens creativity. So he wanted to increase novelty, complexity, and unpredictability. He realized that one of the problems he had at Pixar in his old building was everybody was isolated and nobody talked to one another. So the you know engineers weren't talking to cell animators, weren't talking to marketers, weren't talking to producers, etc. He wanted to create an environment that maximized accidental collisions between people that would up the amount of novelty, complexity, and unpredictability in their daily life. So he designed Pixar Studios with a giant atrium in the center, and he put all of the meeting rooms, all of the mailboxes, the cafeteria, and the only bathrooms in the entire giant place right off that atrium. So everybody had to sort of travel through the atrium, bump into one another, increase novelty, complexity, and unpredictability, drove flow, drove creativity. They won a lot of Oscars. Yeah, yeah definitely did. Stephen, I loved how you said um, exposing yourself to new ideas because I was actually thinking in my mind there, imagine somebody who's just like constantly just exposing themselves to the same ideas over and over again. That's like not doing anything for your development of your mind. And then I was thinking, imagine like someone who's actually exposing themselves to new information constantly on a daily basis. Like what is actually doing to your brain? It's actually like firing, wiring new connections all over your body. And obviously that's obviously going to tap into this like flow state, what you were saying. I think it's so fascinating. Well, you have to... 
you certainly you need a growth mindset, right? You need for, for starters. So you got to believe learning is possible. Um, second of all, one of the other flow triggers is pattern recognition. I call it creativity, but it's really pattern recognition. When you link ideas together, right, in novel ways, the brain releases a little bit of dopamine, which tightens focus and does a bunch of other things, and again dr helps drive flow. So. For both the novelty trigger and this pattern recognition trigger, if you're not loading the brain with pattern recognition ammunition on a daily basis, you're minimizing your opportunity for flow. Well, Stephen, as well, just to, just to back up a little bit before as well, because you touched on a point that I want to touch on before as well. You were talking about um, about how flow puts us in the present moment, because I was thinking about this, and it's really interesting how you talked about before was self uh, self dissolves and it sort of like creates the ability to be in this present moment. And it does seem to me that our minds like do overthink stuff and dwell too much on the past and the future. And what I was actually thinking is maybe like the flow state is reminding us to be more focused on the now and sort of seeing that the now is maybe all we have and maybe the past and the future are just like illusions. And I was actually thinking maybe the concept of time is just like a human concept. So maybe in a way, that's what you talked touching on before, it sparked in my mind, maybe the flow state is just reminding us to be in the now and that's all we have. Well, there's a lot of different questions about that. There's a lot of different ways to approach that question. Um, and there's a lot of wrong things I could say here. <laughs> so I will, uh, one thing, to start with is uh, flow only, can only take place in the present moment, right? And mm -hmm. you are certainly correct that one of the reasons flow is so liberating and it feels so good is most of our fears, right? They either reside in the past or the future. Whoa. So by neutralizing time, you are down-regulating fear. The amygdala goes quiet. When self and time are out of the picture, mm -hmm you are a lot calmer, right? Just fundamentally because of where all the danger lies um, in your life. So there's the, the nervous system quiets down considerably. That is a huge advantage as far as, you know, remind, certainly, you know, one thing that we do say is all your power is now. Mm. There's no, there's no other way around it, right? You want to affect change in the world. Now is the only moment you can do it. You want to affect change in your life. It's right now. So flow by driving you into the now puts you in the position where you're maximally effective and you're at your best, you're performing at your best, so you literally are max. you can be maximally effective and you're at your most effective, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, definitely. I was gonna, it sparked in my mind there as well because when you're talking about obviously like the self slowing down and I was thinking when we are in full flow, a lot of people actually talk about how you get this like sense of becoming air uh, with one with the universe and obviously all these like outside distractions like go away and your mind fully opens and i was actually wondering i was going to ask you something like do you think that like this could this like chemical response of the flow state actually be a cause for like the human beings asking like bigger questions about the universe well so now that is a great freaking question yeah. <laughs> so let's for, so first of all let's back up and talk about what you're getting at. So you're getting at a very important point, which is uh, what scientists talk about as unity or cosmic unity, the feeling of being one with everything. Mm -hmm. Flow for a very long time, for the first 70 years that we were researching it, because it produces this experience of, of oneness with everything, was considered a mystical experience. It wasn't until the 50s when Abraham Maslow founded in a study group packed with atheists that anybody thought otherwise. 
the reason flow actually makes you feel well with everything is really interesting. My buddy uh, Andrew Newberg, who's a neuroscientist at Jefferson University, figured this out uh, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s at the University of Pennsylvania. So as you move deeper into flow, and the same thing happens in kind of almost all mystical experiences. So flow exists on a spectrum of experiences that would also, you know, similar things happen in the brain when we have meditative experiences, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, all these kinds of things. And we understand the neurobiology and a lot of it, but it, across the board, you have this feeling of I'm one with everything. Why does that happen? Turns out, and we know this because we did brain imaging studies on Tibetan Buddhists and Franciscan nuns who had meditative practices that produced this feeling of unity that also shows up during flow. And what they discovered is that that deactivation of certain structures in the brain that I was talking about moves in really mo in moments of extreme concentration. It moves out of the prefrontal cortex and into a different region of the brain, the right parietal lobe, that does a whole bunch of stuff. But what's important here is it differentiates self from other. Now, that's not something most people think about, right? But one of the jobs of the brain is to figure out where does you, where does the self end and the rest of the world begin? And you need to know this so you can walk through a room that's crowded with furniture and not bump into stuff. Mm -hmm. So this portion of the brain generates that line. And people who have brain damage, right, they can't sit down on a couch because they don't know where their leg ends and the couch begins. So if the right parietal lobe is damaged by stroke or brain damage or accident, they can't navigate. Turns out, in moments of extreme concentration, this portion of the brain goes quiet. It stops sending out information. It stops performing this function. It's another one of those efficiency exchanges. And at that moment in time, because you can no longer differentiate self from other, the brain decides, has to decide, you are one with everything. So oneness with everything is a neurobiological process. We know where it comes from. We know why it happens. It also seems to confer a lot of really interesting benefits um, that need much, we need to study them a lot more, but there's a lot of, and we could talk about them if you're curious, but there's a lot of things that it seems like we gain from having that experience. And you're asking me a question of, do I think flow states are the primary, were they the first mystical experience, right? That was the question you asked. Yeah, yeah. And so here's, there's, there's, it's a complicated answer, but I think you guys will like it. So, maybe is the quick answer, because psychedelics also can produce the same experience. They do it in a slightly different way, but the, the end effect is the same. So, we know there are cave drawings with you know people using psychedelic mushroom psilocybin, they found them in France that date back 40,000 years. So psychedelics have been around for 40,000 years. Flow, how long ago did it evolve? That's an interesting question. We have, there are studies that show that neurobiologically at least, ferrets are incapable of flow, but dogs are capable of flow. Um, and based on certain, their ability to produce certain neurochemicals. Now we don't really know kind of where and when those neurochemicals started, a lot of them are very old, so it, it is possible that we were accessing flow long before we were playing with psychedelics, but nobody really knows. Well, I love that bit of information you give there, by the way. That yeah, was amazing. That was absolutely fascinating. And, and actually, um, 
it makes it made me think of straight away like um, it made me think when we started talking about um, cosmic unity, and it it feels like like the flow. It's so powerful and unique that it takes us into these like other deep dimensions, like beyond that of the imagination and time. And it feels like it feels like we're getting lost in the state of flow. And when we're getting lost in this state of flow, it's going to take us into like it's take us into these questions, and these questions. They're us in the purest sense of who we are. And that's why I think it's fascinating about the whole thing. And I think that's why... Let me, I, oh, sorry, continue. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm, oh let me, why don't you finish and then I'll jump in. No, no, it's okay. I, I was just um, wrapping up there. I was just going to say, like, maybe these questions is us in our deeper sense. And this is how flow state's helping us access this part of us. So let me pull the lens back a little bit. First of all, I have a new book coming out that is co-written with my partner, Jamie Wheel, on the Flow Genome Project. It's coming out on February 21st called Stealing Fire. So the stuff, we've been talking about flow up till now, which is one altered state of consciousness and how it impacts performance. Stealing Fire is a deep dive into all altered states of consciousness or a specific bandwidth, but a much wider bandwidth of altered states of consciousness and how they impact performance. And it's really about sort of the revolutionary performance that's going on with people utilizing altered states for this. But the point I want to make is when you look at flow, when you look at so-called contemplative and, and mystical states, or when you look at even psychedelics for that matter, you tend to see four common characteristics, overlapping phenomenological characteristics that kind of describe how all altered states make us feel, including flow. They are all selfless. They are all timeless. They are also effortless. There's also effortlessness involved. So this shows up in flow that's where flow gets its name. Flow gets its name because every decision, every action leads seamlessly, fluidly, perfectly to the next. So flow feels flowy. It's effortless effort, right? You're performing at your very best, but it seems automatic. Psychedelics, a little bit different. Psychedelics, the effort is they fundamentally alter your consciousness, take you to a new universe. No action required. It's automatic. It effortlessly takes you there. But the fourth category that they all share, and this is to speaking to your question or your comment, is information richness. These states are very, very, very dense with information. There's neurobiological reasons for it. In these states, we are taking in more information per second, we're processing it more rapidly and more completely. So we're using more structures in the brain to process it. This massively heightens creativity. This massively, you know, heightens all those kinds of things. So the effects you're talking about, right, is that flow states reveal a deeper reality. They actually just reveal what sort of what the subcon the love this what the subconscious is processing all the time. But it is a much more information rich environment that you get. Mm. Well, that's another way. To, uh, uh, another way to say this is altered states are really sort of big data for the mind. Yeah. But it makes you also wonder where is this? What is this big data? That's, that's trying to unlock the. What is the big data? Is it is the is <laughs> well, it also in our asking, purest form? Yeah, I mean, like, you're asking the, the, the. I mean, this was one of my fundamental questions, right? This has always been my question, which is where does the information come from? Yeah, and I can make I can make an I can spend the next half hour and make the most logical, rational, neurobiological performance enhancement based argument about where the information comes from mm. that will locate everything within your bio biology and I can make another half hour argument for 
maybe something else funky weird that we don't quite understand is going on. Yeah. And they're both, as far as I can tell, equally valid. I have no, I, what I really think is that our measurement technology has not quite caught up to our brain's capability. And so it's an unfair discussion at this point because we're not, we're, the, the way that we would actually kind of get at this question, we're just not there yet technologically. Luckily, all the technology we need is advancing along exponential growth curves, so we're going to get there sooner rather than later, I yeah. think. I was, I was just about to say, we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll hear the second one. <laughs> yeah. Makes you wonder, though, do we, do we really want to know the answer as well, though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, because it might take away the beauty. Well, you know, I mean, Rilke, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, said, live the questions. And that's, you know, a, it, it's a bit of advice that I really, like, I, I don't, we're, at the Flow Genome Project, we take a very experiential, experimental approach to all these kinds of questions. And so I, you know, in a, in a sense, in my mind, I'm trying to do what Roka told me to do, which is live the questions. Yeah, I like that. So, Stephen, I, I know you've, like, mentioned a lot so far, and is there any other, like, correlations between spirituality and states of flow? Because I know there was like a chapter touching on in your book, Tomorrowland. Yeah, and we really advance uh, that theory in Stealing Fire. So let's, let, or at least kind of deep dive into that question a little bit. Um, the, 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 the question you have to, I mean, what do we mean by spirituality, right? Like, I think you mean something about belief, something about meaning of life, fulfillment, yeah. and something about greater mystery, mm-hmm. right? So if that, like, if those are the categories that we're surround, like, we don't know what this spirituality thing is, but we're saying it at least contains these three things. Here's what we know. From a meaning quotient, let's just start with meaning and life satisfaction. We've known since the 70s, and this is extremely well validated, that the people who have the most flow in their lives score off the charts for happiness, overall overall well-being and life satisfaction. So there seems to be a direct correlation between how much flow you have and how meaningful your life feels. Thing two, belief. On a certain level, this is a very complicated idea that I'm not going to do justice, but there is a lot of proof that a large portion of the things that we believe are ideas that are re-emphasized by flow states. Oh. Which is a very strange concept to wrap your head around, but, and, it, and I'm not even going to go into it because it just gets complicated fast, but let's just say there's, and, I, and if you really want to look more at that, I wrote my, my second book is called West of Jesus, Surfing Science and the Origin of Belief, and it takes a deep look at the question of where beliefs come from, why do we believe things, and how does this all work? So I've, I've looked at that question, there's a book that sort of pokes at it, I'm not going to take the time to go into it, but... All I'm saying is it looks like there's a correlation somewhere between belief and flow. There's definitely a direct correlation between meaning and flow. And because you get access to this information richness, this heightened information, right, your umwelt, your ability to perceive the world expands in these states, you get greater access to greater mystery. So if that's our definition of flow, Yes, there's a direct correlation between flow and spirituality. Wow, <laughs> you certainly opened that up there. Definitely, I'm definitely. By the way, as well, I'm definitely going to check out that book. I wrote that down because that, that sounds fascinating. That book, but um, something I want to touch about as well. And I wanted to go like delve, like 
into the future a little bit. So um, a lot of people talk about um, like hack and flow state. So I was thinking with like technology advancing more and more and like more people becoming more like fascinated in flow state. I was wondering like what's your views and I was wondering like could you like speculate what the future or evolution may look like like if we could. Well yeah you get so you yeah. let's talk about flow and at a deep level and then let's talk about other spiritual experiences because you guys are interested. Yeah. Um because there's two sets of answers and they're both going to blow your mind. Wow. Um the first let's just talk about flow and technology for a second. As I mentioned, video games are really good at producing flow. Turns out virtual reality is video games on massive amounts of steroids for flow production. Mm -hmm. For example, I played a very early Oculus version of their jumper game where you jump off buildings, right, in a busy city landscape. Very early, very crude, made me a little nauseous, but holy crap did it scare me. Total physiological risk response, right? Very, very cool, very high risk. By combining VR with a whole bunch of... Now, by the way, neurotech is advancing exponentially. So we have, we know you can use neurofeedback, for example, to drive people into flow. All kinds of versions. You can use transcranial magnetic stimulation, which sends a magnetic, weak magnetic pulse through the prefrontal cortex, knocks it out, produces flow. We're going to be able to combine these kind of neurofeedback technologies, these neuro, these brain hacking technologies with VR. Wow. Uh, what that now here's where it gets cool and this is why you care <laughs> when you look at the nexus of so what do we know about flow and learning for starters we know flow is one of the most addictive states on earth drives motivation we also know a quick shorthand for how learning works in the brain is the more neurochemicals that show up the better chance the experience moves from long-term or short-term storage into long-term holding flow is this huge neurochemical dump big spike in learning in studies run by the U.S. military, we see learning spiking 420%. Huge spike in learning. So think about this for a second. With VR, with uh, neurohacking technologies, you can suddenly make high-flow, totally addictive learning environments that are totally distributed. So you can make high-flow schools that anybody with a VR headset in the world can attend. They amplify learning massively and they're totally addictive so people want to keep coming back to school if you add in artificial intelligence by the way you can customize this to individual learning patterns so you get individually customized totally distributed totally addictive high performance learning environments that's an education revolution waiting to happen so that's that's just one example of some stuff that's coming but let's talk about the real mind-blowing stuff well that's not even the mind-blowing stuff, even though it's mind-blowing, I know. <laughs> so there are lots of people working on lots of different crazy altered states, technologies. For example, Palo Alto Neuroscience. They're very early stages, but they can take, say, a Tibetan Buddhist who has 20 years of deep meditative practice, and he can sit down and meditate and put himself into a deep trance state that you can only get to with 20 years of deep training. And they can record his brain waves and a bunch of different kind of biomarkers. And then they can take that same headset, put it on your head, use neurofeedback and a couple other biofeedback things to guide you back into that same altered state of consciousness. Oh. If you look at 
it's a very weird device, but if you look at something like Michael Persinger's God Helmet, we, there's research going back 50 years that says that if you stimulate the right temporal lobe, you can produce all kinds of very strange quasi-mystical experiences, ranging from sense presences, which is the fancy way of saying, I feel like something is in the room with me, a god or a ghost or whatever, to out-of-body experiences, to you know, on and on and on, oneness with everything. And it doesn't work on everybody, but he's put a couple thousand people through this thing, and 80% of them felt something anomalous. That technology is now on the market. People are re people are basically reproducing the effects um, with DIY hacker kits. That's first generation. There's talk about making it a video game. There's talking about incorporating it into VR. What this means is a primary fundamental mystical experience, an out-of-body experience, right? That is the kind of experience that 10,000 years ago might have birthed a religion, right? Um, suddenly is accessible to anybody with via technology. So this kind of primary mystical experience that triggers all these big insights are suddenly coming to a theater near you kind of thing. <laughs> it's, a le it's an access revolution that we, and we have no idea what that's going to lead to, right? It's, by the way, it's getting even funkier than that because there's now really serious, significant enlightenment research going on. Is enlightenment total bullshit or is it real? There are scientists who are, you know, they've looked at over, I think it's 10,000 so-called enlightened beings. They've got a, a, an assessment at this point that seems to be fairly well validated for picking out enlightened people. And so we're starting to get data on that. Is it robust? Is it real? Who the hell knows? We're at the front end of this research, but these are really great questions to be asking. Yeah, I think that's actually the first time I've one of, one of the first times I've really swore on this podcast there. But um, honestly, like that that is absolutely fascinating. I, I try to write down loads of stuff that will really spark into my mind there. And well, uh, the, I mean, all that stuff like, that I just talked about, everything I just talked about with kind of what's coming, that's foundational notions in Stealing Fire. I let me tell you the most. Let me tell you a little bit about what Stealing Fire is about and where it came from, because you guys are going. It's the most mind blowing part of this whole thing. Like, honest to God, I know I've just really kind of said some crazy stuff, but this is the most mind-blowing part. Stealing Fire is a book that, at the Flow Genome Project, we train people in an altered state of consciousness. That's what we're doing for a living, right? Like, that's really what it is at a basic level. And we do this at a very high level. We work with the U.S. military. We work with top technology companies. We work with Fortune 500 companies. And it's pretty weird. To be going into these environments and training people up in, a, in the use and value of an altered state of consciousness. Pretty weird, right? Like, you can imagine that's not business as usual. Yeah. But over the past five years of doing this, every time we go into one of these environments, somebody would come up to us afterwards, usually dozens of people, and say, wow, this flow stuff, it's, it, it's great, it's amazing, it's really cool. But, you know, my whole team is going to two-week silent meditation retreats instead of Vipassana. Or we're microdosing with psychedelics on a regular basis to enhance creativity and problem solve. Or we're going on skydiving missions to trigger flow, really extreme flow states very, very quickly um, so we can harness it for collaboration and cooperation. Really radical interventions from all across the altered state menu. And what we, it started, it wasn't just one or two conversations. They were hundreds. They were everywhere. So we started to look. I mean, it was like one of these conversations we were having. And we were like, 
holy crap, did that just happen again? Did this, you know, top product manager at Fortune 500 company X just tell me his entire team is using psychedelics? Did that really happen? Right? It was it was a bunch of those. Mm -hmm. Like, what the hell is going on? And some weirder stuff. I'll give you I'll give you a really crazy example. We were at the Navy SEALs, and we were in their mind gym, which is literally their million dollar, you know, high tech wizard neurohacking lab that's essentially been developed among other things to help them produce more flow because flow is extremely important to the Navy SEALs. Um, and in a corner in a back, you know, are two float tanks, John Lilly style isolation float pods gussied up with neurofeedback that they're using to kind of drive flow and accelerate learning. But like everywhere we went, people were using these technologies. We started to realize it was a giant revolution and we started to realize there were four forces, psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology that are all accelerating along exponential growth curves that are all kind of driving our ability to map and measure altered states of consciousness and use them to heighten performance, which wow. is really the craziest thing out of all of this is it's not just all this stuff is happening. It's that there's honest to God a secret revolution going on at elite levels of business and technology and science and the military and education to harness these states to improve performance. And to me, that's the most mind-blowing part because it's not dawning of the age of the Aquarius hippie revolution. It's at the heart of business and innovation and technology and culture and people just haven't noticed yet. Uh, Stephen, that's exactly how it's going to be at the revolution in part in, um, in the, for the generations to come is how they're going to use and access all this different technology and use and access this technology for a better purpose in life and a better existence. And I think right now um, what we're talking about is flow is the gateway to offering these timeless and endless possibilities. And the story that you mentioned before about the Tibetan Buddhists with 20 years of um, still uh, meditation and training um, and he gets himself in these deep trans, um, transcendental states, and this makes me think. And like, if we could take his um, state of consciousness, and then use and harness that and plot that into somebody else's consciousness, maybe we can also put that idea, um, sorry, use that same consciousness into somebody who's struggling in life, and then we could actually see and monitor. Them. Oh, for sure! Oh, for sure! The people are going to be using oh. this as inter interventions. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's going in to fact, go, Sorry, I was just going to say it's uh, going to go into states as well, where we can actually transform and change DNA and, and whole structures of life. It's going to change and all that. Well, let me give you. Uh, I mean, this that's already going on. Let me give you the kind of the classic example um, of of what this looks like, and let me give you three comparisons. So, PTSD is a huge problem, right? Twenty four million Americans will suffer it at some point in their lifetime. Um, it's a crippling disease, and there are very few standard pharmacological interventions that really work. Mm -hmm. So, 10, 15 years ago, uh, a guy named Michael Mitherhofer down in South Carolina, he's a psychologist, used MDMA, uh, which is you know this basically pharmaceutical ecstasy, to induce an altered state of consciousness coupled it with talk therapy and started treating soldiers and victims of child abuse with PTSD, right? Seeing does it work as a protocol. And what they found, and there's now four years of research to back this up, is that one to three sessions with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy 
is enough to put PTSD into either total remission or a marked decrease in symptoms enough that people can really, really lower their meds. So they redid that study again at Camp Pendleton with a thousand soldiers and they replaced psychedelics, a very aggressive and maybe high risk intervention with flow. They used surfing, which is packed with flow triggers as a trigger for flow and coupled it with talk therapy. Same protocol with flow as a substitute for a psychedelic. They got the same results after five weeks. They redid the same protocol with meditation as a substitute for flow, again looking to treat PTSD, and they found they could get similar, not exact, results after 12 weeks of meditation. They couldn't get a total reduction of symptoms, but they could get a partial reduction of symptoms and enough for people to start getting off their meds. So you're looking at, you know, three very, very radical, these are very fast technologies for healing, right? Think about that. PTSD is an intractable problem, and here we have a, you know, kind of aggressive, sort of maybe higher risk technology. MDMA is pretty harmless, but you do have to take an amphetamine that takes, you know, one to three sessions. You have a slightly less risky technology, flow, triggered by surfing, um, that'll get you there in five weeks. And then meditation, very low risk, but lesser reward and a lot slower, producing the same selfless, effortless, timeless, information-rich experience in the brain. They're getting you to the same place. Three different interventions, three different ways of curing yourself, um, flows in the center. But what you're really looking at is the power of kind of turning off, you know, a big chunk of the brain to heal the brain. Wow. I was so much sparked in my mind there. I want to ask you actually, because when you were talking about using psychedelics, I was actually smit sparked in my mind there and I was actually thinking what could a future civilization look like if we actually like adopted the, the combination of flow state and psychedelics in less proper scientific um environment so we don't know those answers yet they're in they're really interesting questions i've been talking a lot over the past couple of years to rick doblin at maps yeah. which is the multidisciplinary association for their psychedelic research rick is a longtime friend um and we want to look at that there are studies that were done on uh i want to say it was in couples counseling i could be wrong I want to say it was in couples counseling, I, I may be wrong here, that looked at combination of psychedelic therapy, and I don't remember what the psychedelic was, it might have been MDMA, it might have been uh, psilocybin, I'm not, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember, uh, coupled with meditation, and they found, which is by the way, totally obvious, but like they found that of course, coupling them together max, massively amplifies the effect. We do the same thing at the Flow Genome Project. We, you know, one of the things that we fundamentally do is we train people up in respiration training, mindfulness respiration training, at a very basic level, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is that concentration training of any kind, because concentration triggers flow. Meditation is great training for flow training. Right, you're training the brain to pay attention in a very focused way, which is great for flow. I was going to say there, so much sparked in my mind there again. There, I was actually thinking. When you were talking about obviously like um, trying out all these different methods, I was actually thinking, could it be possible in the future that like um, hacking these flow states could actually boost like our immune system and obviously tap into healing properties within our body? Well, that's sort of the research that I came in on. Uh -huh. um, I was looking at flow. I uh, I had I I had been very very sick for a very long time, and flow inadvertently. I didn't even know what I was looking at. I didn't even know it was called flow at the time. 
brought me back to health, and I didn't know how the hell that happened. Mm-hmm. So the things we know for sure is that all the neurochemicals that show up and flow boost the immune system, and simultaneously, and possibly more importantly, flow resets the nervous system. When you move into flow, uh, all for, for technical reasons, all the stress hormones are flushed out of your system, and they're replaced by these kind of feel-good, performance-enhancing, immune system-boosting neurochemicals. So if you have an autoimmune condition, which was what was wrong with me, that's essentially a nervous system gone haywire. So simply by resetting it back to zero and then pumping the body full of these immune-boosting hormones and, and neurochemicals, you get, a, you, get, you get a big boost. I think simultaneously, because flow correlates so powerfully with meaning, mm-hmm. it does, there is a lot of indirect evidence that shows that at least with, you know, when you get on message in your own life, stress levels go down massively, and again, immune function goes up. So there seems to be a lot of overlapping effects. Certain scientists have gone as far as saying they think flow underpins many, if not all, cases of so-called spontaneous healing, miracle cures, that sort of stuff. I don't think it's anywhere near that far-reaching. I think we're at the front end of this research, but I definitely think it's something that's worth studying and paying attention to moving forward. Yeah, definitely. It is, it is really fascinating to think of, and it just sparked my mind there, and it's definitely going to be a possibility, I mean, in the future, and we're definitely going to be able to see it more as well. But as well, just as well, just to jump back again and go back to the technology conversation as well, because we're living in a world now where everyone has so much more access to technology, and it's, it's evident to say that's obviously constantly expanding. But I was actually wondering, is there any connection between like flow states and developing like new minds via flow states? And maybe I was wondering actually maybe if that connection and interaction between them two worlds could actually affect the future of technology as well. I'm not a hundred percent so I'm, I'm not a hundred percent certain exactly what you're asking me, but it sounds like what you're asking me is can flow drive innovation? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, for reasons that are technical. The neurochemicals that uh, produce flow also surround the creative process. You get heightened information processing, right? More pattern recognition. Pattern recognition underpins all innovation. All creativity is the ability to link ideas together. doesn't matter what kind of creativity we're talking about. You always have to link ideas together um, to, to pull it off. Um, so that is massively heightened inflow. We see a pretty high correlation between creativity and innovation and flow. So we think it's a direct driver. And you know, one of the reasons I, I got so actively involved in this is if you're, I wrote a book called Abundance with Peter Diamandis, which was about four forces that let humanity tackle grand global challenges, poverty, education, hunger, water, are the biggest challenges of our time. And, you know, we believe that it's now entirely possible to significantly raise global standards of living. But it's not an automatic. It's sort of a race against time, right? Can we innovate fast enough to stay ahead of those things that are coming to kill us? And, you know, I believe, and this is Peter and I wrote this in in, in our follow-up to Abundance Bold, that flow is a fundamental component of that. If you're not leveling up your mental game, right, to go along with all this accelerating technology, you're not playing at speed or at scale. Mm. Stephen, like a question I want to ask there was, um, what do you think may like come up in the future, like future technology that may revolutionise like the human body and mind? Well, I mean, 
you know, take your pick. Um, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you know, really, I mean, all of it's going to revolution. I mean, depend how far down this rabbit hole do you want to go, right? If, if you if you want to talk about Ray Kurzweil's work about when you know he believes that the man machine merger will, will, will these technologies will be interface or accelerating so quickly that by twenty twenty nine that that period we're looking at kind of a fluid merger between man and machine. So, you know, Ray does not tend to miss in his predictions, right? I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason he's Ray Kurzweil, um, and he's accurate a lot of the time. So at least, you know, you at least got to, you know, whether or not you believe exactly his date, you got to say, okay, we are progressing in that direction pretty damn quickly. Um, what that will give us, those are open questions. But, you know, we are, to, to, to put it really, really, really basically, so Moore's law, which underpins uh, acceleration in computers, right? It says that your computers get twice as fast every 18 months while the price stays the same, right? And Moore's law is the reason that this smartphone in your pocket is essentially a billion times faster and cheaper and smarter than a supercomputer from the 1970s. But Moore's law does not end today. Nine years from now, the average $1,000 laptop is gonna have the same computing power as a human brain. 25 years after that, the average $1,000 laptop is going to have the same computing power as the entire human race. Wow. So, and those are exponential growth curves, and that's just based on kind of fundamental measurements of, 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 of brain pattern recognition uh, power, right? That's what, that's what, that's what we're comparing here. Um, but, so, all this stuff is expanding very, very, very quickly. Neuroimaging is on an exponential growth curve, right? Mm-hmm. And the technology is getting much more robust. Sensors are getting much more robust. So all these things, you know, they're all accelerating exponentially. They're all going to, you know, change everything. Blockchain is going to revolutionize, you know, capitalism and democracy. That changes everything. Well, when you said when you said there about the uh, the laptop being the same as a human brain, I just thought when you said that, I was like, whoa! I was like, I would love to see the 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 time when we actually create a laptop that is good as our human mind, because if you think about the human mind, the human mind can actually like heal itself. Obviously, it's been proven like what Wim Hof was doing, but obviously, just imagine if a, like a laptop could actually or any form of technology could actually get that developed and create a system like that. Flipping hell! Like the machines themselves could even go in their own floor state. <laughs> so interestingly crazy topic for discussion but when I first founded the Flow Genome Project one of the guys who came to our, our some of our early meetings and who I know quite well is a neuroroboticist and he built neuroroboticist is the idea that if you kind of put if you build brains up one layer at a time the way they're built biologically and you put them inside of an embodied system because humans are embodied we have bodies right so if you build kind of a natural forming brain and put it inside of a robotic body and train it up, you can get, a, it's, it's an approach to AI and robotics that people have been looking at for a long time. And uh, this guy believes that if you can use, you could use flow and neurorobotics to accelerate learning uh, in, with the robots um, because it has, you know, if you could determine its baseline neurobiological correlates, you could get the reactions in robots and get the accelerated learning. It is a very, very far out crazy idea, yes. but it's interesting. That just so much sparked in my mind there as well. I mean, this probably this what I'm going to see here is probably could be another podcast in itself. But it actually made me the question when you when you were saying about like obviously a laptop being the same as a brain. 
I was actually asking the question myself there in my mind, have we actually already got to that point in time already and we've just forgot and we are actually already that machine that we've already developed in the, in the past? Well, are you asking the are we living inside a simulation question or are you asking uh, are we cyborgs? Um, both. <laughs> well, so the guy who did the best work on are we cyborgs is a guy uh, in Edinburgh named Andy Clark. And we, I write about this again in Stealing Fire, and he argues that like we've long been. Anytime you use technology to accelerate biology, you're becoming a cyborg. So anybody who wears eyeglasses, anybody who uses a portable memory device, otherwise known as the World Wide Web, is a cyborg, right? With augmented reality, that's becoming closer and closer and closer, and you know, and then as the technology starts going into our bodies, it's closer and closer, further still. So it's 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 a continuum and we are already well down that continuum where we are already cyborgs and you know do you live in a simulation is one of those great great questions and it's you know people in silicon valley have been debating for a really long time most everybody who's looked at the question thinks that there's no way you can't answer the question yes the most interesting evidence for it was philip rosell the guy who's uh kind of created second life he did a bunch of experiments at looking at like really fundamental levels of reality um, and realizing that the picture gets blurry and grainy as if it were a simulation in a weird way. I can, I'm not doing it justice. He's given some talks on it. Silk Philip Rosedale, you know, simulation. His, his view on this, I think, is the is 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 the most interesting uh, of anybody I've heard. Um, I just think it's a fun debate point. And in fact, yeah, uh, my, my partner, Jamie Wheel, co-founder of the, of the Flow Genome Project, just did a Facebook Live uh, about this very question. I think he talked about it for like 40 minutes. Well, yeah, it is It is a really fascinating conversation. And when you do, like me and Chris as well, we always like try and like, we have conversations about this and it just, it just sends your mind down. It's like, it's a beautiful tangent. It just actually like, try and figure out like these uh, mysteries in life and I, I do I think it's beautiful as well I really do I really do find it so fascinating um, but just as well just something I want to ask you as well just to sort of wrap this up as well um, just just to go back to flow states as well to wrap it up um, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about like when the people are introduced into these flow states and they are experiencing flow uh, in the daily lives and engaging these sort of like they engage themselves in better activities and they're likely to have like high levels of like self-esteem and like we said before they ask the bigger questions and things like that and obviously they have other things as well like dealing with anxiety and they feel obviously a lot happier as well but i was actually wondering what would happen uh, like in the future if like on a global a global scale sorry if we could actually just like shift the whole population by a few percent like what would you think of the possibilities there in the future so we don't actually have to wonder because uh, some folks at mckinsey did this calculation So McKinsey, the business consultancy, did a 10-year study, and they found that top executives in flow are about five times more productive than out of flow. So five times more productive is uh, is 500% more productive. What that really means in, in actual workplace terminology is you could go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, take Tuesday through Friday off, and get as much done as your steady state peers. If you take two days a week in flow, you're about 1,000% more productive than the competition. So these are huge, huge, crazy numbers, right? Really big numbers. What it is estimated, we don't know, but it's estimated that people spend on average about 5% of their work life in flow without even noticing it. Well, that's not everybody. There seems to be about a 5% of the population that never get into flow. 
but for the remaining 95%, they're at least in flow 5% of their work life. Um, less common at home uh, for a variety of reasons. What McKinsey calculated is if you could increase that by 15 to 20%, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a half a second, but 15 to 20% overall workplace productivity would double. Well, so you want to double global workplace productivity, 15 to 20% rise in flow. Now here's the crazy part, and maybe this is where I can leave you. Um, last year, the Flow Genome Project went into Google. We did a six-week flow training at Google. Oh. We, uh, it was an experimental training. We did it you know, in conjunction with Google. We trained people up at about four fundamental basics about high performance and four of the 20 flow triggers for six weeks. After six weeks, we, they reported a 35 to 80% increase in the amount of flow in their lives. So 15% increase doubles workplace productivity. We did a six-week sort of minimalist training with Google and got a 35 to 80% increase in flow. So I think the possibilities are really interesting. They're really, they're, you know, early data suggests uh, that you could affect real significant change um, pretty quickly, by the way, um, with this stuff. But obviously, a lot more research needs to be done. Yeah, definitely. I was just going to say as well, this is a little closing point as well, because I thought in my mind there, I didn't, I didn't want to miss, skip, I didn't want to skip on it. But when you were talking about um, sort of pro- productivity, I was actually thinking as well, it could be a strong um, contributor to like, the creativity as well. And obviously, when people's minds are fully more open and become more like attuned to the fact that of creating new ideas in the world, like this could actually have a big effect on human consciousness as well. Well, so this is a long story. It's in stealing fire, but flow, frequent access to flow, you still have to do the work. You, your personal development, there's no escape from it, right? You have to, we, we always say at the Flow Genome Product, nobody can do your push-ups for you. But it does seem that access to flow, um, access to most kind of positive altered state experiences actually, move you up the adult development scale. What that means is it makes you more empathetic, more open to experiences and new ideas and other people, more able to hold contradictory, multivariable points of view at once, um, which essentially means we get more access to this. If you, do your, if you do the work that goes along with it, over time, you end up becoming a much better person. So not guaranteed there's a lot of variables that go into it but um it does it does seem that there is you know again some impacts that way again way more neat research has to be done you're asking these big crazy (laughs) out there questions i'm giving you answers but fundamentally yes tantalizing research in that direction but we don't really know yeah (laughs) that's that and i think that's the beauty of life is that we don't really the more we think we know the less we know and the the more we keep asking these questions the more we're finding out that this world is full of mysteries and full of beauty and we're still looking and still trying to unravel it and thank you Stephen, for being a huge part in that for us today and we're being honored to have you on the podcast my pleasure guys appreciate it yeah thank you so much Stephen. thank you Thanks for taking time to listen to the podcast, guys. And another big thank you for Stephen for giving us his time. Please check out Stephen's website, stephencotler.com. And check out Stephen's new book called Steel and Fire. And please don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends about the podcast. And next week is another very interesting podcast with Carl Sathena, where we discuss what are animals really thinking and feeling. So anyway, I'll catch you next week. Peace. <laughs>